Welcome to The Digest Show, brought to you by Black Rectangle Collective. This week's show, it's going to be a little different. It's our first extravaganza program. Josh and I, we've decided to tackle the rom-com genre. What we've done is pick one romantic comedy from each of the last four decades. We're going to look at what makes each of these films stand the test of time, what makes them similar, what makes them different, and what each of them has to say about love. We had a ton of fun on this one, as I think you're about to hear, and I hope you do too. Enjoy! Joshua, I think it's pretty clear that you would be Albie Singer, and if that's the case, that makes me a pretty good Rob. Yes, absolutely. I could see you with a fro. I could see myself with a fro. Now, I was going to go with, if I would be Harry, you'd be a perfect Jess. You and me at the batting cages. Yes. You, know, you and me talking shit at the ball game, going yes. to the movies. Yes. But unfortunately, I'm much more of a Tom. And I hate that we're going to have to get to it. But we are on today's very special episode of yes. the Digest Show. It's a rom-com extravaganza. Extravaganza, baby. I don't entirely get that reference, but thanks for letting me make it. Yes. If you know, you know, I suppose. You know, if you know, you know, right? Josh and I wanted to take a step back on this week's episode and do a little combo action. We had this idea. We, we do a lot of highbrow stuff, uh, Academy Award. That word comes up a lot. But we love all kinds of movies, right? Not just the pretty shiny shit. We like everything. And one kind of movie we both love is the rom-com and we love it because it feels good but we also love it because it can be a great commentary on the state of dating on young people on love in a specific decade which is the perspective we took it or it can be a reaction it could be uh, a harbinger of things to come although the state of things for love in the world and we thought that would be a really fun conversation show to bring to you all you- Absolutely. We are here for the rom-coms, folks. Seriously, seriously, seriously. From the age I can remember loving movies, I have loved romantic comedies. They hit the spot, folks. So we chose four films, and we decided to do one for each decade. The first two decades, I feel like, were pretty easy. Um, so the first one we're going to talk about today is Woody Allen's critically acclaimed classic about a stand-up comedian named Albie Singer who looks back on his relationship with a quirky, everyday gal named Annie Hall that America fell in love with and looks at why the relationship didn't work. That's going to be fun to get to. That was the 70s one we chose. For the 80s, had a little bit of a conversation about this pick, but ultimately it fell to When Harry Met Sally, uh, a film written by... Uh, rom-com extraordinaire Nora Ephron and directed by Hollywood giant Rob Reiner stars Billy Crystal and Meg Ryan as the t- titular characters, if you will. It's a 12-year journey of two friends as they answer the age-old question that this movie got really famous. Can men and women ever just be friends? And uh, also when a little research, I found words like, are you high maintenance or a transitional partner? All came from this movie. So when we get talking about cultural significance that's gonna be really fun i'm excited about it heavy coinage heavy coinage yeah yeah looking at you carrie bradshaw 
Number three. So this was a tough one for us to choose for the 90s. Because I feel like the 90s could be characterized as a rom-com rich decade. And I think already having a Meg Ryan film in the 80s made it easy for this pick. We chose 10 Things I Hate About You. Which Not- I'm so pumped to get to. It's an all-time, in my family, that shit was on all the time. 1999, Such- here was something to say. Dude, that shit has legs. That movie's going to last a long time. So good. Woo. So this movie is a modern adaptation of uh, this guy named William Shakespeare. Have you ever heard of him? Um, uh, I, Bill? Yeah, yeah, Bill. Thank God he got this movie adapted from one of his little stories because I think he's going to need the help. Uh, the Taming of the Shrew, whatever the fuck that means. Right. In any case, it's uh, an old Shakespeare classic put in a high school setting. I don't think it could be anything more 90s. Uh, this one's got the cast check mark of the movie's. We're introduced to Jason Joseph Gordon-Levitt, who is going to be a prominent member of today's show. We got underrated high school babe, um, Julia Stiles. Yes. So, so talented. Shaping then, the crushes of my young heart. No doubt. And then it's where we first meet Heath Ledger, who goes on to become one of the most revered young actors of his generation. Um, we all know how that story ends, but we're going to talk about the good times, because this role yes. so big for him. So mm. great. Yes. I hate... That on the show, I do this thing where I just put the camera right in my face. And it's because I want to be honest with you all. And I want to get personal about how much I love movies. The film for the 2000s that we chose is a movie that I love to hate. And it's called 500 Days of Summer. It is one man's reflection on a one-year unofficial, were they together? Weren't they? Uh. Of his what he thinks is his dream girl. It's a retrospective that leads him to understand what was seemingly perfect was not what it seemed. I wrote that myself. I was proud of that. That's good stuff. That's I'm not, for that's everyone out stuff. there, if you're friends of us personally and you see me in the street after this episode, just just don't say anything. All right. I'm not looking forward to that one. All right. Welcome to segment one of that 70s podcast, Annie Hall, 1977. Now, I got a lot of friends who love a lot of different kinds of movies. When I think Woody Allen... And his films, I think about you. You love oh, his movies. I do. I do. I, I love the the style and the texture of his movies. I love there's a there's a Woody Allen movie feeling uh, that you get. And Annie Hall is basically the movie that created that very saying, like that feeling of a Woody Allen movie. That's this movie that you're thinking of. So yeah, definitely. I'm I'm definitely pumped. Definitely pumped to get into it. Well, we wanted to talk about, for each film, how it is culturally culturally significant. And I'm glad you used the word style, and I'm glad you used the word, like, texture. Because for this film, that that's the lasting effect. This brought Diane Keaton into the mainstream. She became America's darling. We all fell in love with her. And part of it was because of her style. Her clothing was androgynous, amongst other things, and unique and creative. It encouraged, you know, the individualism of young women of young men even of, of all people especially in a time when you're dating trying to find love i think it's really reflective of the film of the time and probably one of the most important messages of the film what uh what were your what are your big thoughts about this one yeah i mean i think uh the word okay so this word's going to come up a couple times which is fun i'm going to give it a preface to uh annie styles iconic right it's yes, sir. and 
And I think it's an appropriate time batting lead off here to just go ahead and say that that word is part of the reason why we chose to do this because we wanted to explore also the way that romantic comedies weave themselves into our actual society and how people start to see these movies and then try to reflect that out into their own relationships. And I think that this is a perfect example of that. Annie's style is the shit. You can still see a, a beautiful young woman walk down the street today with a tie on, a vest, and a sun hat, and big sunglasses. You'll see it. And we know exactly where it comes from. Yes, and you still, and you're not mad. You ain't even mad. Oh, you're no. like, no, you, you're killing it. Girl. Yes, yeah. you're killing it. Yes, and it's I, like to this day, you know. We're gonna talk about because this is a decade-oriented list. We're gonna talk about style and how that changes over decades. But this one might be the strongest. You know, the most recent decade, the two thousands. That's our decade. So personally, I feel most akin to the style of that we're gonna talk about. But this one's the most long-lasting. Oh yeah. For sure. It, it is. And, like, also, just to dig in with, with Annie's style a little bit. Take like it away, she, Philip. She bridges, like, everything from hipster to, like, fashionista of the 70s in this to movie. To businesswoman? Like, like, yes. Like, she, like, she sets so many different tones in this for, like, style. And it's so clear. Like, you just see that look. And it's, like, it had to have been, like... So what it really is is a good effort from everyone involved to like make Annie Hall's character that that person that like would be that trend setting because there's this there's a kind of like an innocence about Annie Hall that we all love and that that's like that's where I think a lot of trends come from is from just people who aren't trying and then other people see it and like man that that shit's cool you know Totally like grunge or something Yeah for sure like we had to wear this shit cuz it's cold and rainy that's it. I'm currently in, oh god, in flannel. Okay, and she had to wear that stuff because she was a young person finding herself with a multitude of different hats on, both physically and you know figuratively. And she takes tennis lessons. She acts just in commercials. She wants to take adult learning classes. She's trying to figure it out, and it, her style is represented in that. And I think that's part of the reason people also latched onto it because it was realistic. Like. Woody Allen saw modern day women and he put one in his movie. For sure. And and another thing, I mean, cause we're this is all about, you know, Annie Hall and, and Diane Keaton specifically and her iconic character. So I mean, this movie definitely cements Woody Allen like as as a a filmmaker of his time. And um but you cannot you can't have that happen without Diane Keaton as Annie Hall. Like you just you you can't. I mean, we fall in love with. We all fall in love with Annie Hall and her charm. Is that that absolutely what is it, the, uh, the uh, la di da? I mean, she's just uh, so like uh, so overwhelmingly charming that you can't help but like her, right? You can't. You can't help it. Yeah. Yeah, and it's we're gonna talk more about their relationship in depth, but I'm glad that you said like we reiterate that like, we all fall in love with her. She's so quirky. But she's like I, I said in the beginning, she's every day. She is, and and okay, this is a very relatable movie. And like you know, we're doing this is going to be kind of like a concise scalpel version of these things. So I want to get this in real quick. Her family. I mean, can we can we talk about okay, Christopher Walken? Okay, young Christopher I, Walken. I, I know. I forgot he was in this movie. Okay, Jeff and Goldblum's it, in this movie too, by the that, way. I know, baby Goldblum. I know. And so and Truman Capote. Wait, I did not know that one. You're going to have to hit me with the deets on that. 
I don't have the deets. I'm oh, just I just read it. Sorry. I'm, okay, I'm going to have to rewatch it and find it now. Uh, but just, sure. I just want to say, okay, so Christopher Walken, this like mega famous actor now in like a very early role. And it's like camera spin around the table. You see him a million times there. Everybody's talking. And then he gets one line and it's, we were caulking holes all day. And then it cuts the scene, and then the next time you hear him talk, he delivers this monologue about thinking about swerving head-on into traffic. Cut to having to take them to the airport and, and fucking Alvy Singer freaking out because he thinks he's going to swerve into traffic. It's just great. I mean, and her family shows that innocence, that, that every day that Annie Hall is that we all love, you know? Totally. We did a little deep dive on Annie Hall's character. Um, if you don't mind, I don't know if you have anything prep for this but i think you can handle this question i wanted to be fair in the boy girl girl boy kind of analysis but woody allen as a character in his films what how does this one hit you as a fan this one in particular he's i don't has he ever been as self-aware portraying himself as a comic as he does in this movie yes uh well so woody allen has he has an obsession with with having characters in his movies write that that play himself also write the story of the movie inside the story so like at the end of Annie Hall he like writes a play about his relationship with Annie Hall and he's putting it on and like and, and it's a little different it <laughs> absolutely real life. Yeah. And there are other iterations. I mean, just to name one off the top is Deconstructing Harry. Very same, almost the same kind of a vibe. So like the, he he has like that obsession with that. And I think let's get real for just a second. Woody Allen always looks at himself. I think a little he 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 probably tries to put his best parts on film. Although you do have to give him credit for some things. If you look at his film career, he's pretty obvious and honest about who he is and how he is. I mean, because even in the films where the characters are clearer portrayals of him, he portrays himself as sometimes uh, misogynistic in the fact that he looks down on some people, women's intelligence at times. Even though he loves them and he genuinely cares about them, he does look down on their intelligence. And he calls them out on it big time in this movie. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, well, and, you know, and he wrote the movie, so he wrote that for the character. I mean, no, so he's aware of his flaws. I think and he's put them out there throughout his entire career, and Alvy Singer is just like the rest of those characters. That's kind of how I take it. Gotcha. Thanks for that. Yeah. So the other part of this film we thought was really important was what we called the visual representation of feelings and thoughts. This movie is as quirky as it gets. It's as yes. unique as it gets, especially for the time. There's animation. There's flashbacks. There's split screens. There's these visualizations of, of daydreams that I think is really pioneering. And she, it just for 1977... In a mainstream big picture, is a big deal. And when we were talking about this film, that's one of the big things we wanted to touch on. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, so just to kind of, since we were just talking about Woody Allen, I'll say to tie back, one thing first would be he, he breaking the fourth wall in this. Um, that's something that he's notorious for. I mean, this is like, he may as well have like climbed on top of the fourth wall and said, Mr. Director, tear down this wall. I mean, seriously, it's so overt. I see what you did there. You, thank you, sir. Um, he, so he clearly, it is throughout the film, but you start to think about that and it starts to set a trend. 
like and like because I just want to say one thing for me, like one of my all time favorite works of like fiction that have been put onto a screen is the small screen, The Office, and like I've never heard that, of it. Precisely, it's a quirky little show. A lot of people haven't heard of it, but anyway, you know that right there is that's the premise of the show. You know, so it's something that is a trend that you see throughout comedies through the rest. I mean, and shit, there's. There uh, even in the rest of the movies that we're going to talk five, about. Five Hundred Days of Summer has yes. a lot of similarities. Yes, to this film. it does. So, so I I like that. And then, so just to throw that out there really quickly, but my favorite little device, the filmmaking device that he uses is when he, uh, not only does he flash back to memories, but he yeah. and Andy Hall walk through them together, and they dissect it and. They talk about what they were thinking, and then the other person sheds a little light that the other one wasn't thinking at that time, and it kind of helps them understand. It's it's very well. It's very reminiscent of how everybody's getting analyzed by somebody in this movie, like at least twice yeah. a week. But right, still, yeah. Uh, there are two things I want to say. Is my favorite one I think is when they're having sex, and like her ghost or her spirit that's like another walks one. out, and then. I just wanted to say, like, I think that's how a relation of like functioning, committed relationship works is you is like th they're talking things out, they're talking about their past, their former relationships. That's it. They're they're fighting in a healthy way, which is obviously really important for a relationship. And the way that he again visualizes that, it's it's, it's charming, sure, but it's also just really fucking smart. It is, and he and it's it's notable that he uses the, at these points in relationships he uses these devices that you wouldn't think you would normally see in the movie like this and they they work like uh, last example i think and then we can we could call it good on this but or yeah. potentially but the subtitle scene like when when they're having yeah. a conversation and they're talking about photography and that's it's like the truest it, it is it's the it's conversation so we've all had and you're wondering do they think i'm full of shit but they're wondering, do you think they're full of shit? And everybody's wondering, is if am I coming off as okay, or do I sound like I'm full of shit? And it just conveys this whole like, God, it's just a beautiful moment when you get to, and it's not that's not just love, like romantic love. That's just getting to know people in general too, yes. like that feeling of meeting someone new and that, someone that you like, and having the ability to like, you're like, oh God, is this gonna sound stupid? Like, is this gonna cry? You know, it's great. I love that. Absolutely. Um. So we want to. We could just I just want to say that all of these movies could have their own episode. So we're not going as deep as we could because sure. we're, we just want to touch base with y'all on that. So before we move on to the 80s, uh, let's kind of do a relationship dissection. We're going to do that for each couple. Yeah, Annie uh, and Alvy. What's Annie and Alvy's relationship look like to you on the outside looking in? Um, so one thing I'm going to kind of try to take the time to do as we go through these in this section is just talk a little bit about what makes the relationships different from the rest of the ones we're going to talk about. Um, okay. but one thing in particular is this, I, I like to call this one, the, um, the adult relationship of the day. Like it, it's, it's truly, it's the one where you see adults dating like in depth, like multiple dates, the phases of a relationship, the into it, the out of love, the back in love, the back together, the not quite in love, trying to figure out how to get out, getting out, coming back together, being friends, all that stuff is in this movie. And I, and I think that's kind of the thing that sets it apart. And I think that that's the thing that I talk about, that I will talk about with the relationship. That's the best part about this movie. F spoiler alert, folks, it doesn't work out. And it doesn't work out. That's the point of the narrative is for yes. the character to figure out why. 
and for them to be friends, like true, true, like kind of like legit friends, like just be at a good place with each other, and not like not best friends, but like cool, okay, be, be, like, be able to call each other, hope the best for each other, and yeah. like yes, touch base. Uh, that's to me is 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 the big part about this relationship. And I dubbed this one. I'm gonna do this. You gotta give me a little. You gotta have a little shtick. Uh, the the neurotic and the jubilant. That's this pair. I'm I'm titling them all. You titling them all? I'm titling them all. Oh, I can't. Titles: The neurotic and the jubilant. That's that's uh that's the neurotic Albion. and the ju. That's beautiful, bro. Thank you. I worked on that. That's good. I'm proud of you. I'm bringing it today. Okay. So, do you want to move on to the next decade? Yeah, I'm down. Okay. This next movie I'd never seen, but I was really stoked to watch, and I was not let down. I fucking loved this movie. Fucking same. So I mean, good. One of my favorite comedy moments, I think, may of all time, is in this movie. I'll share it, but it's got yes. So we got when Harry met Sally, uh, Meg Ryan. I I might be wrong on this, but I think this is one of, if not her first big Hollywood motion picture. She's very young in it. Um. So again, the story it covers twelve years of two people who meet. Their relationship in its infancy is two people passing in the night who hitch a ride from Chicago to New York City. And the dialogue that lasts the length of the movie and the length of the friendship starts in that car, and it doesn't end until the end of the movie. And any movie that is the length of one's life or career or relationship is just a good watch. Yeah. And I also just want to say, I think Billy Crystal might be underrated somehow, as famous and iconic as he is. He's so good in this movie, and it made me want to like go watch or anything like that. But I loved him in this in this film. I thought he was great. Agreed. I mean, I really think um, I agree with your assessment of Billy Crystal as being a little underrated. I mean, you think of this guy as like most people think of him as like the host of the Oscars all the time, growing up. But I feel like his. I don't, have you ever seen Mr. Saturday Night? I haven't. No. So he's a comedian in that movie, and he ha- he's just a really cheesy like vaudevillian kind of character. Yeah. And I feel like that that that's what we think of Billy Crystal, like that's- Yankees cap old dude new york shit but like you watch him in this film and his character goes through this great evolution and it's kind of a dick and by the end of it comes to the truth in his heart about the person that he loves and it's great it's a great performance it's so good it is it is it's uh, no no that, that you basically said exactly where i was going it, i oh. mean i think people don't take him serious enough to like think of him as the, some people just choose not to go one way. They want to put movies out that are this kind and like use their talent to do that. And I think he does that. I mean, there are, the analyze this series that he does is also just a touch, you know, little little poke, you know, good stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. So the big lasting thing is going to be their friendship that we're going to talk about at length. But the other thing, because this has been jokingly referred to as that '70s podcast. And we've done some really a lot of more recent films. The '80s are fucking alive in this movie, from the hair to the shoulder pads to the sassy as hell Carrie Fisher to the music to the makeup. Like it's fucking '80s out. To brightly bright- colored pantsuits and people who fucking power walk through Central Park dressed like that somehow. Like you and me, yes, would totally 80s, put some dude. tights on. Like two men oh, put some yes. like. How was your week? Just power walk. I think it's supposed okay. to be comedic, but it's also like, yes, it's good. It's really good, and I I think like the eighties were such a unique decade, and a lot of yeah. a lot of classic eighties movies are 
uh, you know, seen as cheesy. People who love the decade love the decade. People who hate it hate it. But this movie and its 80s-isms, I think we talked about how some of these films can be uh, harbingers of things to come. I think this film is a reflection of the decade stylistically. And it's a good, like, encapsulation of the decade. Um, yeah, yeah. No doubt, right? no doubt. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and also, like, shout out to, like, when Zac Efron's mom started taking over the world. Is that really his mom? No, no, I just wanted to make a joke. It's not, okay. but Nora Efron, dude, like, beca- like just you dominating. Ha- you, haven't, you haven't fucked up yet. You haven't like, called the movie. I know, just, just, <laughs> okay, okay. So, literally... Guys, I started Sleepless in Seattle and got like a few minutes in. And I Tell was how like, you texted me. I was like, dude, Sleepless in Seattle is the wrong decade. Like, we need to pick a different movie. And I start naming. I'm like, when Harry met Sally. I'm like, naming all these 80s. Com- and I'm like, flipping through my notes. And very clearly it says, when Harry met Sally. And I'm like, oh shit. I'm such a dumbass. I, I texted you. I was like, what are you saying, man? What? Well, he, cool. was, he, was, he was like, isn't that what? Like, I already didn't I say when Harry met Sally didn't we already decide that and I'm like what like I st- I'm still naming other choice Pretty in Pink Sixteen Candles I'm like I'm freaking out yeah you really got, got deep in your spoof. list I'm like am I wrong <laughs> I'm pretty sure I'm right glad that we did this one but I did and I still might later in the show call it Sleepless in Seattle I don't know why even the night I was watching I kept calling it Sleepless in Seattle I don't I don't know uh, get one. But no, I just was gonna say like that. She Nora Ephron like dominating the world like, and this is one of those ones. I think is this one of the this is one of the first prominent ones. One I would guess, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Um, yeah. Do you want to move on and talk about their friendship? Um, I got one more eighties. That's a, yeah. That's fine. It's just a long talk, so it fills yeah. up our time for it. Yeah. I know. So the last eighties thing I have is I've. What I like is that there's a classic 80s thing that is missing from this movie. And it's that fucking horrible, dated-ass music and, like, overly synthesized scores. This movie doesn't have it. I mean, it does have a little bit of Harry Connick Jr., which... Whoa! I ain't mad. I mean, I'm not mad, but it just... I just wanted to say, like... I love the fact that this very 80s movies, which shows the style and the aesthetic of the 80s, left out that because you're going to be able to watch this movie forever and not feel like this, like, like you just took a shower with some soap that won't wash off. Like, I'm serious, because that's John Hughes. Take a cue, man. Take a fucking cue. That's too late now, Josh. It's too late now. Oh, sorry. I'm a bad person. So earlier when we were introducing you to When Harry Met Sally... We talked about the phrases like uh, high maintenance um, and what was the other transitional partner like, that you're in between. It gave text to dating in a lot of ways that lasted through things to like Sex in the City and like other television programs and films. Um, and it's all kind of based in a really honest 15 year long conversation, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. from I. W- about halfway into this movie, I realized that from the time the Billy Crystal and his girlfriend stopped making out, that there was basically. I think it's two- really, I think it's really pertinent that the movie starts with that. It start, I wrote in my notes, it opens with lust. Sure, sure, and it ends with the grown up, fully bloomed version of love. You know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, but after. Talking. 
after that kiss ends and he gets into that car, there are literally two people or more having a conversation for the rest of the movie. Yeah. There is no like there's no like long like visual montages. There are no it's just a big ass long conversation. It's not the same two people talking, but it's always two people talking. And I'm here for it. I love that. Like I absolutely do like that. Like but I just was blown away. I'm like halfway through. I'm like, "Oh my god. They've this has literally just been all dialogue. Like this script must have been pay- like so long because of all the dialogue. I mean, my god. Well, it's, it's- Oh, you go ahead. Well, the last thing I was just gonna say is we like you literally had to have split screen phone calls just to get all of the conversation. Like it's so much conversation, you gotta split the fucking screen and show phone calls to catch it all. I mean Yeah. I mean, I think it's really indicative of this kind of relationship that this movie's about, where they're trying to figure it out the right way. They take their time, they don't rush into things. Um, they're not taking each other for granted. They're trying to figure out how to treat each other the right way. They make mistakes. They forgive each other. And, you know, all these movies are shorter. They're all, all these films are an hour and a half long. And yeah, I, I, yeah. I just, yeah, it epitomizes their relationship. Speaking of their relationship, their relationship begins and, you know, to a degree ends as a friendship. They have a legitimate motherfucking friendship. They and do. it's why they're able to have that conversation. And, you know, did we know when the movie started, like, what was the over-under on them ending up together? You know, what was the percentage? Probably pretty fucking high. But this movie is, like, educational. They do it right. And that's what makes this film different than the other three on the list. Yeah, I mean, you started off the with that classic question of can men and women be friends? And I think that, that, that I mean, I think that's one of the main things that this movie is known for. Um, but I love it feels more plausible to me. And I love that they are legit friends who who fall in love instead of one person being in love with the other and selling for a friendship and trying to be the been there all along option at the Beyond. end of the story. Like it, it it's just it's it was so refreshing. I mean, because I may have seen this movie when I was like a young kid. I used to watch this kind of movie with my grandmother when I was like really young so i may have seen it but like not in any way i remember it and watching it was so refreshing to see not not like tired tropes of story yeah right like to to actually approach it in a nuanced kind of a way to get it somewhere without it being just like tired and that's one of my favorite things about this i mean and they it's hard to it's hard to to like epitomize the fact that they are like legit friends that hang out together and talk on the phone. They do things that are fun together and they don't have sexual impulses. Like throughout the entire movie, they do not in any way, shape or form, like share with one another, any kind of like flirty, like kind of any of that stuff looks from across the room until they fall in love. And even, even in the beginning when he comes onto her, it's like, like gross masculinity. Like he's just, like, he's kind of flirting with her at the diner or whatever. But she's like, dude, stop it. What the fuck are you doing? Like, you're trying too hard, you know? Well, and that's in the beginning. Like, more yeah, towards yeah, the yeah. beginning of their, of their thing. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, um, so, while, so while we're talking about that, that, that spinning dancing, I just want to point this out. The, they're dancing on New Year's Eve. And they, 
they've never really felt that way about each other, but they're dancing there. And she points out that they can dance cheek to cheek now that his beard's gone. And it's like with every revolution of them dancing, you start to see the phases of them understanding that they're actually kind of romantically in love. And it happens they quickly, show yeah. that. <clears throat> and they, like, they show that every time they turn around, you can kind of see the thought digesting more down inside of them till they just can't deny the fact that that's just the way it is, you know, on that last revolution around. And it's, it's beautiful. Yeah. The last scene in the next film is classic, but that scene when they're screaming, he's, she's screaming at him about all the things that she hates about him. And just the way that they finally express their love to each other is like, it's so good. It's just so real that they've been, you know, might've been, fighting it for longer than they'd care to admit. And it did take a long time. And uh, it's really touching to me. And I love that scene a lot. It's probably one of my favorite scenes out of these four films. And, okay, and, okay, I got three quick things I want to share about this movie before we can go on, and I'm going to tie this first one in. Okay, so the old couples on the couches getting interviewed is, like, one of the most beautiful refrains I've ever seen in my entire life. And the fucking punctuation of the movie ending with the two of them on that couch is they, like, they played us. They said, oh, uh, yeah, that it's hits big time. It's so good, man. It's so good. And, okay. So, and two things I just want to share, like one of the funniest things I think I've ever seen is so, it's so subtly like deadpan funny is when Harry and Jess are at the ball game and he's all depressed because his wife is leaving him and they're doing the wave and he just like <laughs> just like so his heart is so not in it but he can't miss it and it's not it, the best part the one time was good but then the shit comes back around like appropriately timed like a full minute and a half later and they do it again and it's just like I'm like that is some comedy fucking gold I can't help that right I love that part too oh, I love the part man. when he points out the white man's overbite when he's out dancing or he's telling her about going out I love that little bit. I think that's really funny. And then my yeah. other favorite bit is is Carrie Fisher. Obviously, is great in this film. She's one of the first great best friends in a rom com. Uh, but when, I think it's the third time that they run that uh, Harry and Sally run into each other at the bookstore, and she's like, "There's someone staring at you over in Personal Growth." <laughs> <laughs> and the way she just like waves goodbye, she's like, "And this is," sneaks and the camera the pans over, and she's just sneaking down the stairs. All right, fucking pee. Slick fucking friend. I know. Slick fucking friend. Um, Good friend. And so one one thing I have to say, right? Like, I'm not even going to harp on it, but face acting Meg Ryan, that fucking cry face, dude. dude. Yeah, mm. yeah I, okay, I have something to share about this. I just want to get this out. Okay. The ugly cry face in this movie, when graded from how pretty the face was before said crying started, all the way to how ugly it got whilst crying is What's quite the possibly the like most dramatic transition of all time. And, and so does this make this the prettiest ugly cry face of all time? I don't know. What, what, is, what does it make that? It's in the Pantheon, no it's, doubt. It's so up She there. wears the 80s makeup. I love the part and the end scene when they kiss and she's got like the classic 80s pink lipstick on. Oh, yeah. And they kiss and it switches back to him and it's just like perfectly back on him and off of her face. <laughs> Dying. And, and it's like, it's it, like it, they've done it before. He's like, yeah, I know. I'm just going to keep going. I'm like, 
Oh god, good stuff. So that's 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 my last thing. And well, quick shout out to fucking rated R for two f bombs dropped by the Ryanator dude, Meg Ryan, throwing the f word around. I rated R. I do too. Totally. She's, she's awesome. America's real sweetheart. Okay. Absolutely. Yes. What about that's Matt awesome. Damon? <laughs> that's what we call America's sweetheart. That's all right, man. Matt. Back in the back in the line. We'll see get, you in a few get, episodes. Get We'll see in a few. What's your what's your title for this couple? Oh, uh, let's see. Let me find it real quick. Oh, it's the the cynic and the romantic. Bam. Okay. He's not feeling that one as much. I like the first one was so good though, man. Well, you know, just give me a couple more shots, okay? The the jubilant and the 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 neurotic and the jubilant jubilant and the neurotic. That's gonna be the name of my next solo EP. Mm-mm. Just give me All a right. couple more shots. I might redeem myself. Okay, bear with me. Yeah, I'm excited for the last one. One thing I'll never say again on this episode. Okay, <laughs> moving on to the '90s. Have we been in the '90s yet on the Digest Show? Oh shit! I don't think we have visited the '90s. Uh, cool yeah. and the Gang, almost famous, was 2000. So yeah, 1999. Mm. Ten things I hate about you. Mm. This is an all-time mm, mm, mm. family rotation film. I think that this, I think that this movie is just up there in the upper echelons of our generation, man. Like, no I joke. This no, is one of those movies. It just is. It's like a cable movie. It's like uh, I'm gonna, I pay money to rent this off a of service. It's like, or it's I already know it's gonna be in my collection. Like it checks. It's a rom com. It's got Gabrielle fucking Union in it. Yes, thank and God. And also to add another layer to this too is like, imagine yourself being like fifteen or sixteen years old and going to watch this opening night at the movie theater. Yeah. In nineteen ninety nine, like that would have been some magical fucking shit. Like it'd just be like a f- complete feel good date night. You know. It, yes, this is this is one of those movies, man. It's a good one. You know, for me and my friends back in the day, it was like Mike. But this movie could have been, you know, just one you always watched with your friends, you know, if you were of that time. Fucking like Mike. <laughs> Shout out Lil Bow Wow. Lil Bow Wow, you just don't know. And Jonathan Damn. with Nikki. Lil Bow Wow. Okay, so we want to talk about the stereotypes and the high school couple things that really flesh out the characters of Cat and Patrick. Cat, yeah. her last name is Stratford, and not just the name of the character in the story, and Stratford upon Avon, where this little writer's from, and Patrick Verona, I believe, which Verona is where Romeo and Juliet is set, if I'm not mistaken. It is. I think that was just a little ode. I mean, um, a lot of the, I think the, I think from the original story, the, like, Cat, Katharina or something, or, Remember how upset I was when we were like talking about this? I'm <laughs> like full circle on being into it, dude. It, I've it I've pissed. known you for like ten years, and I was like, I don't know if I've ever hit a nerve that sensitive. And I like walked into that shit like a landmine in a fucking public <laughs> park, dude. I don't know Not why at all. <laughs> okay, so Josh started bringing up the parallels between this film and the William Shakespeare. I'm a like high school English class is like one of the happiest places in my life. Like, 
fucking Dead Poet Society is like my movie. Like this is just my wheelhouse. And for it to be associated with a filthy lowbrow Hollywood rom com in the nineties, like for some reason really pissed me off. But I came full circle and it made it even cooler. So yes. shout out to you, Miss Cobb. Ninth grade Woo! English. Kept it real. Get it, Miss Cobb. All right, let's refocus. Keep it real. Let's refocus. Yes, let's refocus. This t- we're so good at that. The stereotypes of Cat and Patrick. We got bad boy. We got grumpy, smart girl. Yeah, I mean, I want to, if, if I can, because this one's... I'm out of your corner. Uh, You know, Cat is that total 90s rebel girl that we grew up, like, in love with. That fucking Daria action vibe. That, like, badass 90 girls rock vibe. The, like... She wants to go to Sarah Lawrence, too. Yeah, ironclad defense mechanism. Like, you know, that's that shit that makes every young boy swoon at the, like, idea of, like, wooing them their way through her, you know, fortress of defense. Like, I mean, it's like this, like... It could be like that for a guy, too, but yeah. Wait, what? Like oh, a fortune, the, like being this mystery, this like constructed mystique. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. It works. Yeah, yeah. But like, yeah. it's that. It's just that idea of like, I don't know. For me, as like more of an, I don't know how to explain it. She was like th- these kind of like alt girls, this smart girl. Totally. Like said, it was like my thing growing up. I was just in love with them all. Yeah. So Patrick, he's a bad guy, bad boy rather, and he smokes cigarettes. I have a lot of questions about this film. One, why are high schoolers at a bar at a rock show? <laughs> right. Two, everybody's Tricky going to whiskey. letters. To leave. What the fuck is that? <laughs> I know Seattle's progressive, but like, how did they think they were going to get that by us? I mean, you know, who knows what Seattle in the 90s was like, man. Maybe there was a thriving fakes, fakes industry. Like you could just, you know, pay some dude and get a good fake ID or something. Maybe everybody looked the other way. We don't know. We don't know. Not- Nothing is getting between me and letters to Cleo. I'm going <laughs> <to> the fucking <laughs> bar. <laughs> we're gonna we're okay. We're gonna talk about some '90s cliches later, but one that is undeniable now that you've brought it up is like obligatory, like '90s rock and roll band playing in the movie, like either at the dance or at the bar. And it's this at movie, the bar though. Why? <laughs> this one has both. Okay, but yes, no, you're right. Like. He's smoking cigarettes on campus, like they're drinking whiskey and doing all this crazy. Yeah, no, it's but that's '90s high school. It's portrayed in this like stupid, like my, okay, my high school life was nothing like this, nothing at all, nothing. Yeah, no one's is because it's not. No. It was not like that. Yes, it's not. He's also got like the uh, the cool foreign kid vibe. He does, but I, know- I mean, he's. He does, and well, I just want—he, I feel like he's like the for our little age group, he's like the quintessential with a capital Q, like sensitive tough guy. Totally. You know what I mean? Like that's what he is. Yeah, I think so. But he's corrupted. But then he finds real love in his heart. He does. He finds love in his heart. <laughs> Matt, get in the back of the fucking line. Quit showing up. And then, okay, quick shout out. I know it's not the main, the two scenes, but well, well, in just a second. But like while we're talking about stereotypes, um, Bianca, 
like another like we just get you got to shout out that quintessential like 90s valley girl yeah like pouty little sister yes like she's gets all the attention there for it yeah i don't remember seeing that actress in anything else um i i know i've seen her in something else but off the top of my head i can't think of anything if i had like the ability to live action fact check it i would but if only there was an infinite resource of information at our fingertips but anyway moving on do you want to talk about oh we want to shout out gabrielle fucking union oh yeah let's do it i can Uh, shout her out okay so for for someone i owe this favor to shout out to gabrielle union fucking smoking hot as ever and somehow you play characters that are you know anywhere from 15 to 20 years younger than you and it no one ever bats an eye at it because you make it work. I remember reading she like was buying everybody beer on the set because <laughs> I think she was like like twenty three or twenty four years old. <laughs> I can totally see her being the like the cool the older, cool older kid yeah 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 on the set like everybody's like oh my god have you hung out with Gabrielle? Because she'll get you some beer if you need some beer. She's she's dope. She's <laughs> so great. cool. That's great. And shout out Julia Stiles dancing. She's acting drunk in that movie. I also read that she'd never been drunk before. So true, truly great performance. Yeah, but and I believe she goes that on to dance in the before the that was before Save the Last Dance, right? I mean, she she showed it. She I was watching it. I was watching it a few days ago. I was like, damn, she's got the moves. She looked great. Some overpaid scriptwriter in some studio basement literally got paid to write that whole movie after they watched that scene. They were like, that girl, and we need a movie about her dancing and make it happen. I, I love Julia Stiles. Oh, I'm I such a big fan of hers. She's I great in the Bourne movies. I, I wish, wish that she was able to like have sustained like a big career and be like still be doing like big name stuff. Like, where, where are you at, Julia Stiles? Well, maybe she made like some personal career choice and she's happier. So kudos, Julia Stiles. I could see maybe I I'm making up an alternate reality here. I she went back to school, she found a career, in a vocational sense, something for the people. She went back to school for sure. I like it. She's eating fine wherever she is. She's doing good. What are some of your other favorite '90s cliches? Oh, dude. Okay, my favorite, my absolute favorite, is in every '90s like teen movie. That I've ever seen, and it's a lot, because I was young in the 90s, and I wanted to be a teen in the 90s, right? I wasn't a teen in the 90s, but I wanted to be a teen in the 90s. I was I was old enough to do that. It's the, the fucking high school quad opening shot when the kids you go to school. I love that scene. Dude, if, okay, featuring the skaters, the goths, the alts, the jocks, the preps, the stoners, and the nerds. There must be a football tossed, a skateboard must be ridden, and there must be a couple like making out somewhere under a tree, maybe a dude playing fucking acoustic guitar. And like every time I see these movies, I like light up like a little kid and I'm like, oh my God. I like I really do. I love I wanna it. go back to school. I do too. But then I immediately no, am I like don't really that was you. Where the fuck are these schools? Like, where are these fucking schools where these kids just do this? And like, why are you all here so them. early? And go to like, the bar. Yeah, I mean, shit, like, shit. When I was going to high school, when I was going to high school, it was black. It was dark. It was nighttime when I woke up. I was pissed. I didn't want to be there. There was no quad frolicking. No, certainly no. wasn't any bar hopping. Half the time, I had gotten off work at like 10 p.m. the night before and was fucking tired, or sometimes 11, and I was fucking tired and I was ready to go to fucking 
I wanted to go to sleep again. You know, like it's no, it was not that. And <laughs> were you and working not at, only that? Were you working at the bar that the other cool kids were hanging out at? I was working at yeah, I was hang I was working where all the cool kids were hanging out. It was called the movie theater, okay? Oh yeah. Yeah, and it's like but it just trips me out because there's no it just if there's ever been a high school like that, I am like hard pressed to know of it. Like ever. I mean, maybe there is like in like LA that like or Seattle there are yeah, high schools all, like that. All but... over sprawling sound sets in Los Angeles, California. There you go. You boy with the, the top nev- top level analysis. Oh, um, uh, what's the time? You got some more? I got, well, I'll finish one really quick. The, um, so, yeah, Letters to Cleo in the club. And it's like, I love how uh, Patrick's like, oh, they're no Bikini Kill or the raincoats, but, you know, they're all right. And she's like, you know the raincoats? You know who they are? Well, he obviously, like, went and d- dug some dirt. Oh, hell yeah. He got paid yeah, yeah. and, like, dug it up for sure. Um, but then at prom, you have Save Ferris, which top, top-notch, like, 90s band right there, okay? Um and you get like the chick from Letters to Cleo like joins them or something, but then at the end of the movie, Letters to Cleo again playing on the rooftop, like they somehow went to. It's like these bands like somehow go to school at these high schools, like. And plus, how did you fucking hire Safe Ferris to play at your prom? Like, what is this world? <laughs> again, I just don't get it. Josh, it's not real. It's a movie. But what the hell? Still, I know, I know. Okay, I'm gonna stop. And then the last one is the party scene in every '90s movie. There's Biggie. This giant, you know. There's got to be, Biggie's you know, my favorite. somebody gets spurned, somebody gets drunk, and somebody walks away like the moral high ground in one way or another, right? At, in every 90s movie. He was, like, helping her up the hill when she was wasted. And, like, she screamed, and somebody, like, said something. Or she fell, and somebody said something, and he, like, looked around. Like, we've all been there helping a, helping a friend. Oh, yeah. Is they, Are they in trouble? Or are they helping? Oh, it's good. We're looking out. I love... Tell. Biggie Smalls in the party scene is my favorite. Oh, moment. fuck yeah, dude. That, dude, that yeah. beat just, like, hits right in there. Hell yeah. So it's, good. And it's, like, in those scenes, it's, like, somehow the party always, like, descends on the house. Like, at one time, like, 150 people just, like, are coming over the lawn, like, carrying kegs and shit. Like, what? And, okay, that's the other thing. I've been I, to a, I went to a lot of high school parties. I was no, by no means, like, my point is, I may have thrown a high school party at my parents' house a time or two, but there were never, like, eight kegs, 250 people. Like, I'm sure somebody had that experience. Wasn't me. Yeah, what? No, was it anyone? It wasn't me. Out in Dallas? Gaston County? There wasn't no keg ragers? I mean, they probably had a couple of parties at some farms, you know, back in the day. But I didn't go to those parties, so yeah, I didn't really fit in in high school. Um, that's why we're friends, I guess. Um, we also get to meet Joseph Gordon-Levitt, who features big on today's show. He's in the next film. He's in this film. Are you okay? I mean, I just immediately, as soon as you said it, I just think about how this dude has been playing roles that like project super hard on women since he's like been a teenager. And for some reason, like women have just fallen in love with him for like ever over his. He, yeah. Well, it's a, interesting I mean, I know it's thing. much more complex than that. I'm just general. I'm being funny is really what it is, but it's just amazing. You know, they, he they, plays call, this that, they call that a paradox. <laughs> I think that this is just my own analysis here. He made a movie called Don Juan where he plays like, like a sex crazy like wannabe ladies man 
in any case, I've like watched an interview with it one time, and he says, "I made a movie about intimacy because I think I'm pretty good at it." Meaning that's just something that he's interested in at, if he has a partner or whatever. And I think the roles of his youth inform the roles of his adulthood. And I think as an artist, he's just interested in that. No, I'm not mad at him. Oh at no, all. I know. Yeah. yeah, no, I, I like, I dig it. I just, dude, again, I, just... I full, full, full disclosure. I walked in here ready to like hate on Joseph Gordon Levitt. Well, it's like that whole, you know, it's like, um, okay. So first, I, this is gonna be like a tiny little sidebar. I'm sorry. I'll keep it quick. I have never read nor watched a single moment or chapter or page or word of the Twilight series. Never, right? But it was funny because, like, when that shit first came out, it was like everybody loved Edward. They were like, oh, my God, Edward is the cutest, hottest, like, oh, my God, Edward, Edward, Edward. He's, like, adorable. I love him, everything. And then I noticed, like, because my girlfriend read those books, all of her friends, you know, da 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 they get to be slightly older, and then it's like one day, I don't know, maybe it was like 24 years old. She like looks at me and she's like, you know, that was some really unhealthy shit. That dude was like watching her while she was sleeping. And he was like obsessing her and stalking her. And that was not a healthy relationship. I can't believe that all these young girls are like running around like thinking that this is healthy, right? And it's like that moment. It's like this dude has just played that like that character that that you like. Like when you just kind of want like that whole like I don't know it's just you this... want it till you got it and then exactly you don't want it. that's in my notes you want it until you got it and then you don't want it anymore because, because deal with this because a good relationship isn't like like self masturbatory you're not just like satiating every need you have like like superficially no yes and this is a conversation we're gonna get to yes, in the next is. film okay but in any case before we move on to the next film. What's your title for these two, bro? Okay. All right. This one, uh, it's, it's of the times, right? Okay. Of the times. So this is when the teenagers run around like obsessed with Bukowski and stuff. Okay. So this one is The Rebel and the Misunderstood. The Rebel and the Misunderstood. All right. All right. So moving on. <laughs> oh, damn. Dude, you started off so good. I'm sorry. Maybe my last one will... will redeem myself but if not i'm i'm the openly okay with making the a fool of myself it was good i'm proud of you that was great thanks man you're welcome okay our last film is a movie i love to hate 500 days of summer 2009 500 days of being on one fad before you move to the next one um so this movie our notes written here are the retro and the cool. Oh, so this movie kind of, we talked about Annie Hall and how her style uh, influenced a generation of young people. This film did as well. And a lot of ways they did that is how it embraced retro style that still exists today. Haircuts, sure. uh, shirts, uh, like the dresses that girls wore, the shirts that boys wear, the way they cut their hair, the music that they listen to and the way they present themselves and embracing quirkiness and individualism, uh, thinking that that's unique, which it's not, but that's a further conversation. Your thoughts on this? Oh, absolutely. Uh, birthed out of the 2000s indie rock scene is this movie, okay, first and foremost. And I think that you're absolutely right. Like, you, we, we've talked about some of the things in, in movies that have, have bled into generations. I mean, you see, think about it for a minute. You go into, the, like, the 80s, 90s, and the aughts, 
and you see this like trend toward um, like at least the young hip youth trying to look cutting edge almost like puffy jackets and neon colors like dominated and it was like trying to look much different and much uh, more futuristic than the past generations but then but then around 2010 2008 9 10 you start to see this turn where people start really falling in love with these like older things and yes Se- you're right sepia, sepia tone this Film. this this movie definitely hits that right on the head at the right time and like capitalizes on that vibe a hundred percent like absolutely because that's definitely a thing that happened right about that time like you start thinking about the hip kids they start dressing a little different and even now like you think um well maybe not now because i'm old now guys i don't know what kids kids real kids dress like but like you know you see like the even the young conservative kids running around with their little polos and their Sperry's and their cut off khaki shorts. And it's like, that looks just like the fucking kids from revenge of the nerds. Like, you know what I mean? Like with their sweaters tied around there. I mean, I don't know. It's like, yes, we're in a retro is cool phase. And this movie was like right at the crest of that wave. Uh, some really good examples of that. I can think of her like a daydream scene with summer, the character she's like, it's framed in like an old school 35 millimeter film thing um the music the shins the smiths smiths the smiths <laughs> I, I, wrong I, movie i was thinking of garden state for a second Woo! could have been on the list <laughs> just a couple of letters difference no big deal <laughs> i mean you know the shins smiths the smiths yeah what Mercer, is sir morrissey yeah he's yeah. a toss-up you know are the shins our generation smiths Oh, hot take. Hot take. You know, talked about the retro being a cool thing the big lasting effect of this film also is the way that these two characters influenced a generation of lovers the kind of lust the kind of pseudo love the are they aren't they kind of relationship i feel like the next decade personally i feel like i was influenced by this these oh yes me too 100 percent big time it's almost i'll I'll wear that badge yeah it's almost painful watching this movie because i see myself as as a uh, sensitive man so much in tom's you know his faults really yeah okay i do too but the, before we get into that specifically there's one distinction to draw though okay we grew up 
this this dude was already like in his mid to late 20s like going through this and like by the time we hit that we were reflecting back on that person that we used to be and being like damn how much have we grown emotionally and this dude is still in that phase so i mean his little sister is more mature than him so what did she say just because some quirky girl oh just some cute girl likes your quirky music doesn't mean she's in love with you exactly yes i mean so but uh yeah no i was one of those i was so every boy wanted to be every boy wanted her and wanted to be him and every girl wanted him and wanted to be her because they thought in the movie that that's how it was supposed to go but it was all just based on a misunderstanding of this whole relationship expectation and projection you know Yes, and that's perfect. I'm glad they used that device in the movie. I think some people, there's a lot of different camps that people fall into about this film. And one of them being, you know, they hate Summer and she's a bitch, you know, and they don't. Popular camp. They they think that she's ruthless and stuff. You know, it's kind of hard to really have a consensus about Summer's character, in my opinion, because the whole movie is from Tom's perspective. We only see. Summer, from Tom's perspective, except for the end, and we're really kind of left a little window to make our own judgment about how the relationship ended, or, or Summer's character, rather, she gets married. And I just, I, I, when, I, when I was researching this film, that's something that like opened my eyes to it, because I've been in that camp, and I've related to the movie on, on, like, you know, she said she didn't want anything serious, but she kept doing it. She's like, oh, I wanted to. That's why I did it. You know, you could get upset with her for some choices as a character, but in totality, you can't really make a, a judgment of, of her. Again, because we don't really know her. She's draped in this mystery that Tom's puppy dog love it, it obscures our vision of her. No, for sure. So um, we're going to talk about it a little later, but one of the like markers of a, a rom-com, the main characters always have friends. They have confidants, right? Oh, we're going to talk about it. Yeah, and so think about it for a second. Summer has none. We're not shown that from her. She's not a main character in reality. Summer is almost I like I hate to use this word because it's kind of like hot button, but like in a way, and I don't want to like minimalize people who are truly being objectified, but she's almost an objectified character in this film. And like the opening credits of this movie let you know that this movie is coming from a bitter ass motherfucking dude. Like Oh yeah. They, I mean, fuck oh, yeah. you, or no, wait, excuse me, Jenny, bitch, like, come on, dude, like, you're setting a tone right away, but, like, her character is almost objectified, she's not given any, you don't get any, Concept. no, only what she says to Tom, that's it. And she gets no relief, or, like, redemption from us as a viewer, even when she's, like, given the opportunity to say she gets married, and he says, but... How could that be? You know, you said you never wanted to be anybody's boyfriend. And she says, because I wanted to. I don't think the writing really gives her an opportunity to be, you know, the question is, does she need to be redeemed in the first place? But even in that moment, that might be her her evening out moment of the movie. It's not really a good light that she showed. It's still questionable, you know? No, you're right. I mean, the one, the one light, okay, so the thing that gives Summer an out for me um, is honesty throughout the whole thing. She was honest. And even at the end, even though she taught, she honestly told the dude, like, you know, we don't want to get, I don't want 
anything serious, but then like she breaks up with him and three months later she's getting married, right? Like aside from that for just a second. Aside from that, sorry. uh, For real though. She's honest with him like the whole time. And even at the end of the movie, after she's married and she finds him on that bench overlooking his favorite little view spot, um, you know, she tells him, he says, well, you know, he's basically bringing that point up. Like you said, you didn't want anything, but then you're married. And she was like, I just didn't feel that way with you. Like, and to me, that's honest. And to me, that's fair. Like she, she may have been looking at this thing as like a, she may have thought of him as a cool, fun guy that she was into, but she looking at him was never in a place where it was like, I'm ready to spend the rest of my life with you. Like I think I find you someone I'm compatible with that I can do the dirty work of a relationship with. And I can imagine like the nights where I have fucking diarrhea and shit. Like I'm being, I'm not, I'm not trying to take it there, but like, that's love. Like the nights when I'm going to need you to clean up after me or when I get hurt and you got to wipe my ass, bro. Like maybe she didn't think that that was that dude for her, but this other person gave her something that gave her that. You know, and then she's ready to commit. And she honestly told him, I didn't feel that way with you. And a lot of us who have been broken up with, most of us don't even get that level of closure. Just being straight up told, like, it just wasn't you, you know, because most of us were petulantly broken up with via text message. Even some of us in our fucking 20s. So that's kind of my thing. I'm glad that you surmised that point of view because I've come around to that part of this movie where I had an up-and-down relationship with this film, as I, my, I myself matured as a human being. You know, yeah. this story is a... This movie is a story of maturation, in my opinion. You know, we see the the ups and the downs of love, but Tom does, at the end of it, he, he gets his closure from this former lover, and he also is... There's a symbology of his new hope. He gets a date with a young woman whose name is Autumn. I, I think the character does grow and the character does learn from his stupid fucking projection and views on love self-indulgent. I think he does too. I think, and that's one of the things that I think that's one of the things that is lost on this movie. I agree. Most of the people our age are going to rewatch this in the next few years and the coming years. And they're going to start taking that from it versus the thing they took from it the first time they watched it when they were younger. Um, and I really do. Um, and I think, so just so you know, the, because even though the dude kind of does have his, like he grows and all that different stuff, this dude is, he is like a fucking like needy ass, like, Oh my God. Like, dude, you need some help. You need to, you need to just like, you need to be a little independent, right? And you need to like have a little bit of your own interest, which I'm glad you got into architecture. And I hope that when you get you a new boo, like you're like, I need to work on this every now and again. And you like carve out some time for yourself and you stay independent. But like the name for this one is the lady and the wimp. Because like for real, dude, this guy is, I'm sorry, not showing me many chops here. Not showing me many chops. Yeah, he's also like a really talented architecturist. Maybe projectionalist. I'm just saying he gets one window of brush of fresh air, brush of fresh air, and he's like really good at it. I think you're right. They do. He needs it, it. He needs his me time. Yes, he does. And I will push back on one little thing. Um, by the end of this movie, it's not like the guy has a job or anything. So we don't know if he's good. 
we saw him draw some stuff on Summer's arm. But no, I'm just, I'm just fucking around. It would have made but, a dope tattoo. Uh, it would have made a dope tattoo. But no, I just think like overall, when I look back at this movie, there are a lot of nuances. And because I mean, like for example, she tells him she basically puts him in friend zone, and then like three days later is like ambush making out with him in the copy room. So like you can dissect the plethora of mixed signals that they both give each other the whole there, fucking time. Both nobody's perfect in this movie. Love is complicated, especially love when, is, and especially when boundaries aren't certain and two people aren't on the same page. Like you're a human being, you're gonna have impulses. You're gonna remember things differently. I don't think anybody's to blame in this movie, and I think on earlier viewings, I was looking for somebody to blame, and I think a lot of people do. When there's Agreed. not, there's not. You don't need to blame anybody. This shit's fucking hard. No, but again, I do have problems with why is this dude's sister so much more mature than him like he should just be a little that's all but yeah i feel you we're gonna get there in fact we're gonna get there next Bam! we've just done four mini deep dives of our four rom-coms that we're talking about today now the next angle we wanted to attack these films with from rather and all these movies our primary leads have friends and they provide counsel they provide comedic relief. They're vitally important to the story of romance that we're exploring in these films. And we decided to go down in each film and talk about each four group pair or single friend in each film. Number four, Rob's an actor, okay? Rob is Albie Singer's friend. He's an actor. He's not in the movie a lot, but damn it, he's got a great suit, he's got great hair. And his counsel for uh, Albie is really interesting. Very sound counsel most of the time, um, except for the bit about moving to L.A. because who would, oh, my God, New York over L.A. any day. Uh, But I think um, the one thing I just want to say is to kind of preface this before we really get in there is like every rom-com, like the thing that, the thing that separates a romantic comedy from like a romance story is the friendship element. Like that banter kind of vibe that you get that and the introspective, like bringing the relationship into your life where you can kind of relate to it. Um, and the failings of relationships are what romantic comedies offer versus romance stories. And, you know, that is a quintessential factor. So let's just state that first. But, um, for for Rob in this story, one of my favorite – I just want to shout out my favorite scene of Annie Hall is is the scene at the, early in the movie where uh, Woody places the camera like at the end of a city block, and he and Rob are at the far end of a city block. And you, you can't really – like the first time you watch the movie, you would never be able to like recognize that they're even in the shot. But you hear them, and they're, these random people keep walking by the camera until they keep walking and walking closer, and you, you start to make them out. And they flow through, and and Woody's talking about a lot. Basically, he's mostly talking about like Jewish identity and the different situations he finds himself in in society where people are kind of hitting at his ethnicity and his race and religion and all this different stuff. Um, but but I just love Rob. Rob, this one again is about the adult dating thing, and these are adult friends, but they've known each other for a really long time. It's, right, that's, like, that is obvious. That's a key in this. They grew up in Brooklyn together, but like they've known each other for a really long time. And he does give good advice, I think, to 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 Alvy, you know, I agree. He's a good, good homie. 
Yeah, and he's also like making bukus of money and getting his tan on and like that hood he wears in the car and he's like it protects from the UV light. It's it's just like a total like seventies vibe from that guy, a hundred percent with the fro and the big collars and yeah, love it. His pantsuit is reminiscent of uh, Vera Farmga's character in The Departed. <laughs> I never made that. That's so true. <laughs> they must be fans of the show. <laughs> I think the most realistic friends are Murray and Jess and Harry and Sally. Harry met. Oh, uh... I agree. Agreed. Yeah. I, I... I love J- Jess and Harry are probably my favorite friends Mine too. In, in the whole group. I, I mean, relate to them the most. Yeah. I love the way, um, like Jess, uh, like up until he marries Marie. Right. Which is also a, a cool fucking note in that movie. Right. Like the, totally. the two best friends get married, but like, um, up until that point, I love the fact that he just can't get his head around Harry and Sally's relationship. Like he just, he can't, Wait, he's like, wait, but what? Like, you don't want to sleep with her? Like, he just doesn't understand that they're, like, legit friends. And, like, Harry literally doesn't want to, like, fuck her. I mean, like, pardon the French, but, like, he's not trying to smash that. He just wants to be friends with her. He likes her as a person. And he can't, just cannot wrap his head around it. I love that. They're at the batting cages, right? Oh, yeah, for sure. And a couple of other, like, little iterations throughout, but, yeah. We've talked about both of them already, but the batting cages and the wave scene at the ball game are my two favorite friend scenes across the four movies. It's yeah. just so relatable. It is absolutely relatable, absolutely relatable. And I mean, I just I think and Marie, we already talked. We shouted her out a little bit earlier. Marie's She's a Rolodex. wily. Oh, that plastic ass Rolodex! She plops the thing down on the table. She's like, "I'm gonna find you find somebody you. to go out yeah. on a date with." You know, just crushing it. Yeah, for sure. I really love you. I mentioned it on the recording of the show, but you brought up the influence of that scene, the like the brunch scene, that's yeah. like influence on like Sex in the City. It feels that way to me. Yes, it I does. wholeheartedly agree. And and okay, and, okay, check me if I'm wrong here, because I'm I'm you know I'm, I'm a you little hard to my vices. But uh, what's the name of the character who? What's the name of the actor who plays uh, Marie in this film? Carrie Fisher. What's the name of the lead character of Sex and the City? Carrie Bradshaw. Carrie Bradshaw. Carrie, right? I just was a little curious. I mean, I don't know. She's got a little flavor. Carrie. Okay. Uh, anyway, I, the, the main thing for me is uh, I really like the vibe. There's a little vibe that Marie gives, and I like it. She's like that friend who's like looking out for you and trying to hook you up with the person you should be with, even though maybe you don't know that that's the person you should be with. You're trying. They're trying to like nudge you. Like that, that sneaky. You already mentioned it, but the sneaking down the bookcase. That's a that's a friend move right there, dude. Oh that's, yeah, that's a I legit friend right there. I, I laughed out loud when she did that wave. Me too. Me too. Me too. The scene after they Harry and Sally sleep together for the first time, and they call Marie and Jess, and they're like, "Who is? Who are you talking to?" Yes, the split that's screen. The, so the, good. Oh, that is brilliant. The, okay, so just if you haven't seen this movie, just put in your mind really quick. It's a split screen of two people in bed, 
and they're lying beside each other and each one of them are talking to their best friend whom have just slept together for the first time and they can hear each other like everybody can hear everybody on the call but they don't know that they can hear everybody on the call it's this really hilarious moment that that like rob reiner pulls that shit off like brilliantly it's good stuff. so good i mean he's a master filmmaker like let's get that real of course yeah Definitely. uh move on number two yeah let's do it cameron and michael and mandela and cassidy yes um okay so cam and michael i just love okay so that's cam cameron is uh joseph gordon levitt and 10 things i hate about you and michael is uh bernard from uh numbers uh, no, but, he's the guy from Numbers. He's the head elf from the Santa Claus. Maybe I'm, to you and everyone else, but to me, he's the genius brother brought on board to solve crime. Let, and let and CBS hit mid two thousands sitcom Numbers. I mean, I enjoyed Numbers. I'm just saying, like people need to respect Numbers. Cultural weight, the Santa Claus Numbers. I mean, you, you know, to pick pick your poison. Uh, uh, but. Okay, my favorite thing about this is they're kind of like, so in the classic rom-com uh, trope, uh, they are kind of the confidants and, or air quotes, friends of Patrick, Heath Ledger's character in, in 10 sure. Things I Hate About You. They're kind of, so, and j another thing about that movie that we didn't even discuss is the whole, like, what is the obsession in 90s movies with, like, paying a dude to, like, take out a girl like what the fuck was on these people's minds in the 90s like uh, like i think that i think that there always has to be a rich douchebag i mean i get that but like yeah i mean i just you know there there has to be I go, yeah yeah okay i get it to exemplify the means that a rich vapid douchebag would go to yeah say sure. you you fleshed out the 80s style that is being brought back now by Young men wearing Reagan Bush t-shirts and boat shoes and sweaters around their necks. This is the 90s, bro. Everybody's got a job. Let's vilify the dude with money. I like it. Thank you. I mean, so they pull off a dope scheme, uh, which is something that we did not talk about. You know, so what happens is uh, Cam is obsessed with Kat's sister, Bianca. And in tr in true to the uh, temptus uh, or taming of the shrew form, uh, the father, which by the way could quite possibly be the greatest '90s actor of all time, what's that guy's name? I, I have his name, Larry Miller. That's his name. I he also guarantee it. he also reprised his role of uh, the dad in the television show Ten Things I Hate About You, which I thought was interesting. Wait, wait, wait! There was a fucking television show. I didn't see it. I don't know if anybody did, but it happened. No, nope. nobody should have seen that. Anyway, great actor. Uh, but so they run the scheme because uh, Cameron falls in love with Bianca, and he uh, learns French to become her tutor and all this different stuff. So he and his friend um, Michael, who's played by Bernard, the head elf in the Santa Claus, um, and the guy in Numbers. And the guy in Numbers. Um, they come up with this scheme. So they trick the rich douchebag joey i think and i think is his name i mean it just sounds about right but i'm not 100 percent on that is it is it joey sure. it's joe yeah it's joey hold on let me check my notes it's fucking joey yeah it's fucking joey so anyway uh they tricked this dude into paying patrick heath ledger's character to 
to swoon and take out Kat so that he may take out Bianca, but he doesn't know that Joey is actually trying to get with Bianca, and that you know leads to a little bit of drama coming up. And I just love the ingenuity of these two youngsters trying to like get away to like get the what girl. What kind of he genius loves. could have thought of such a plot line? Probably the head elf at the North Pole, who's like in charge of all these duties. Like you, you would imagine <laughs> that guy's pretty smart. I was leaning more towards William Shakespeare, but that's cool. <laughs> I'm determined to win this Santa Claus battle. Uh, yeah, you fucking have it. That guy, you know, whatever. Or that group of people, who knows? It's a very interesting topic. Uh, the next pair. Um, Mackenzie, Paul, and then Rachel, who is the little sister. So Mackenzie and Paul, I think the only role that they really play for me is they're just like, those background dude friends, they're definitely I, not as, like, heart on the sleeve as Tom. That's for sure. Who is? I think that, again, we talked about how that whole film is portrayed through Tom's perspective. And even his friends, I think. Like, one of them's kind of a nerdy loser that he doesn't really respect his opinion. And the other one is just kind of flighty. Again, not very smart. They're not really seen in positive light. Well, yeah, I mean, one of them is married already to, like, the girl he fell in love with in high school and is, like, a doctor. So he's trying to, like, vicariously live through Tom. And then the other one is just, like you said, there's, like, a, I don't know, just kind of floating through life, like, doing what's next and not really, like, getting fucked up and singing weird shit at karaoke and that kind of a vibe. Yeah, but, like, I think... For me, one of the only things I find super interesting about that is um, there's a lot of that movie in particular. There's a lot of like showing because it's from the male's perspective mainly. So like when he wins with Summer and he's like on his upstrokes, there's a lot of like fun interactions with the friends and some banter there. And then that scene uh, like after the first time that he makes it with Summer. And they're like doing the, it's like this. He like looks at his, it's like the morning glory montage and he looks at his reflection in the car and it's like fucking Han Solo and he's like feeling like a badass and he's like busting out into song and they're like, it's like a full on musical number. Yeah. Yeah. And he's like, he's talking to his friends about it. And it, I mean, that's the, the big takeaway from them. But really, the friend in that that really matters is his little sister. His She's sister. the one like, yeah, pointing the finger and like, get your shit straight, motherfucker. Like, you need to grow what up. What is that? I think that that choice is made for the film to like expertly highlight Tom's immaturity and the fact, and you already referenced it earlier, the fact that his little sister, you know, knows to pour him a glass of vodka and sneaks out of home at 10 o'clock at night to come to her older brother's apartment. And she knows what to give him, what advice to give him. She meets him on the bleachers at school and she's telling him like it is and, and, and making him like putting him down. And again, I think that there's a reason so, why the yes. sage is a little kid. So that he stops like repetitively breaking plates. Like I, mean, I that's, love that scene. I mean, it's a famous scene from this movie, but like what are your what's your what are your thoughts on that scene? Let's get for a second. Share. I, I mean, I think that that scene is a representation of just like mindless self-indulgence of pain and being addicted to being lovesick. And like he he's mindless in pain and he just wants to break plates and it's, it's almost mechanical 
because he's allowing himself to do that because he's not being responsible emotionally. And instead of like getting over it or being constructive with his emotions, he's just being violent. And like, I don't think there's, yeah, that's my opinion. Yeah. I agree. It's like pent up, like get the, yeah, no, for sure. He's like stone face. He's not expressing any emotion. All he's doing is just grabbing one play after the other and smashing it on the counter. Yeah. I agree, and it's and it's it's also like you said, it's one of the devices used to show uh, how immature he is in the beginning of this story versus where he comes out of. You know, like no doubt, yeah, yeah. for sure. All right, do you want to move on to the next segment? I think we can. So, all four of these films have iconic scenes. Each of them memorialized in a myriad of montages and highlight reels for each movie for the actors who were portraying the characters and when josh and i were putting together this list it was unanimous and it took about four seconds as it would for i assume all of you probably pretty fucking easy annie hall number four the lobster scene if you've ever cooked dinner ever had a quirky moment with your significant other where you're you're feigning drama or anger or some insightful emotion, but really you're just playing with each other and it's endearing. It's hilarious. And it's really a great representation of closeness and trust. And this scene is iconic for those reasons. It is um, agreed. I think, you know, it's, it's just like you said, it's that moment where, uh, you know, you're testing the spaghetti noodles and you pull one out of the pot and you throw it. You know, it's 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 that spontaneity. That, it's like that building song. a shelf with while you move in together. You put a shelf yeah. together and it goes completely wrong and you're able to laugh with each other about it. You are. It's it's those. It, it, that's what's so beautiful about Annie Hall is um, and this scene, I think, is one of the some is a great way to summarize it because it really does. Um, show you that you can fall in love and you can fall out of love and you can be okay. Hmm. You know, you, you yeah. can, you, you can be okay. And I think um, like, so for example, the, he tries to recreate this scene with a later partner and it just yeah. doesn't have the magic. And it's because the magical part of it was how spontaneous it was. He's trying know? to like entertain his partner. Yeah. He's and, trying and, to make her laugh and, She's like this effervescent, you know, lively human being. So her reaction is what her she contributes to the to the moment. And so he's just cultivating that. One of my favorite lines in the movie, which of which there's a lot, is if I put a butter dish on the side over here, he'll run out the other side. Like that shit makes me laugh every time. Yeah, for sure. And <laughs> yeah. I mean, it and like also the the genius of tapping into this. Like okay, so. Um, there's that old trope in relationships where, uh, you know, you the couple will cook together. Um, whether you take it like, so my first date with my partner, we cooked fucking boxed spaghetti with a jar of fucking red sauce in her dorm room. And we thought we were doing it big because we chopped up some fucking onions and some, you know, some other shit, mushrooms to go in that. And we were like doing it big. We were fancy as shit. Had a bottle of red wine, all that stuff, you know. Um, but that's an that's an age age old thing, you know, to do with Absolutely. your partner. So whether it is that first date or whether it's that 
that um, you know that husband or that wife is trying to, which whoever doesn't cook is trying to like just you know do this special thing for the other Be involved. Party. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like it's a trope. It's a it's a it's a complete refrain that happens in in stories about relationships is cooking. And I think that that was a really smart move to tap into that. You know, and and get that. Because it's smart, it, it's relatable, which is something that all these films are are relatable, you know, in their own way. Love it. Number three, fake orgasm. <laughs> <laughs> so we talked about how Harry's character probably goes through the most visible arc of any character here, and to start out, he's he's a dude's dude. He he simplifies sexuality and. He thinks that he overplays the orgasm and he thinks that he knows what's right. And he probably thinks that women should stay in the kitchen. He probably thinks the man's the one to go to work. He thinks that. And he slowly gets his view of the world that's so misinformed slowly gets chipped away. And the best example of it is the scene in a diner when he says, there's no way I've never made a woman. I've never brought a woman to orgasm. I know if she faked it. What do you mean women fake it? And she's like, they fake it all the time. What are you talking about? And she shatters his fucking world. Shatters it. Shatter by effortless, like, effortlessly, like, fearlessly in public, in front of everyone. Like a house of fucking cars built on the top of a nightstand on a cliff in the middle of a fucking tornado. She just blows his mind and i'm willing to bet you that that movie taught a lot of men a lot a fucking lot i think it's great that something out of context could be seen as sexy and sexualized and like would turn you on but and nothing's different about it but because of the context it makes you feel about this fucking big yeah it does so good so smart and I bet for, you know, like, this is one of those classic moments where here we are, two men sitting here. We, we both have women close to us in life, but we can't speak for them. But, like, for a woman, you know, it, you got to feel so empowered watching her just be like, fuck yeah, check this shit out, motherfucker. Like, I can do this sitting here over this diner food in front of all these people with no mood, with you doing absolutely nothing to make me feel good. And I can make you think... That you're the fucking king of the world, motherfucker. And that's not how it is. I'll have what she's having. I'll have what she's having. <laughs> Best part. So good, dude. And, like, you think, like, that he, Rob Reiner keeps cutting over to that couple sitting yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you, like, think that she's going to be, like, just disgusted. And then at the end of it, it's like, nope, I'll have what she's having. Cause, so good. Because I bet women, women have been faking it for dudes for a long time. I'm... Uh, yeah, and I would I would like to believe that that is becoming less and less uh, obligatory for for them. I mean, keep it real, y'all. For sure, keep it real. Keep it, um, shout, shout out to hold on, shout out to an yeah, artist yeah, yeah. I went to, to I went to school with uh, made a, a pillow or some other fiber arts, and it was just don't fake orgasms in pink font, and I always clapped at that because don't because you know. If your if your basketball coach clapped for you when you missed a layup, you probably would never get any fucking good at basketball, right? So I'm just I just think we should not we should we shouldn't clap for people with poor performance. Agreed. Kudos. Moving on. 
Number two, 10 things I hate about you, the iconic scene. You're smiling already. Stadium Serenade. Come on! Heath Ledger's Patrick climaxes his love for Cat in a beautifully orchestrated stunt, evading both haughty campus police, orchestrating a band, hitting every note with lush accuracy, <laughs> asking, <laughs> professing his love for Cat, dancing <laughs> on the bleachers, to Frankie Valley in the Four Seasons. Iconic fucking moment. It's the good stuff. I mean, um, I think this scene set the bar for every prom proposal for like the next fifteen years. How many? How many people do you think tried to replicate that in the following spring? When's prom? May. I didn't do prom, so but uh, how many? How many? Not how, either. <laughs> funny. Um, uh, it got to be May or June, depending on like year and year. Stuff. No, that good how stuff. many how many people tried to pull this off and didn't get to run away from the security guards? It had to be so many. I mean, it had to be so many. I mean, I I really truly believe that this is the moment though, where every guy wanted to be Heath Ledger from then on, and every girl wanted to be with him. I think this is this is his coming out scene. As a heartthrob. Yeah. No, for sure, because that's like, uh, that's complete ownership. Like you're putting your shit on the line. You're out. Yeah. You're smacking one of the cops on the ass because they're not quick enough to catch you. Like it's and you're just doing your damn thing. And like every girl on the soccer field wants to be her because of that. And like I think aside from the indication that the only thing you can do to win a young lady's heart in the nineties is tell her that she's better than her sister, uh, this proves that like you if you can do something in a crowd to to make a woman or a person feel, excuse me, like everybody else wants to be them because of what you're doing for them. That's always a good move. Always a good move. Agreed. Agreed. How did he not fall on his fucking face? Because he's fucking Heath Ledger. Cool as shit. Yes, absolutely cool. Absolutely. And, you know, the great thing is, uh, you know, because I'm a light at the end of the tunnel, he may have left us too soon, but at least he never left us anything to laugh at. That wasn't oh. meant to be laughed at. Excuse me. Like he never embarrassed himself as Heath Ledger. Heath Ledger was a stud, a star from the beginning. I want to offer just a slight addend. This is off the cuff here. A slight addendum, memorable, honorable mention for this movie: the end scene when she's reciting her poem for which the film is named. Oh. But most of all, what did she say? Damn it. I hate the way I hate nothing about you, not anything, not in, uh, anything at all. And, and runs my, out of the room. Ugh. My favorite part about that is like, okay, so she delivers this like fucking gorgeous, heartfelt, emotional poem out loud in front of the whole class. And you get so silent in the room, you can hear a pin drop. But what do you hear? Her flip flops <laughs> running out of the room. It's still the 90s. I know, I know. Can we bring? Can we? We just need to bring back, bring back the platform flip flop era. I just want to see it again. Like I'm not. I want to see that out loud. I want to see dudes in like one size too small polo shirts with horizontal stripes, 
little too much gel and a high and tight cut and a puka shell necklace. Bring it back. Oh, I know. That's okay. That's when I'm really going to feel old, right? So the cool kids now, like, uh, you know, what is it? Uh, uh, Biddy, uh, Billy Eilish or Eilish or whatever, um, is doing her thing. And she's kind of like reminiscent of this, like mid nineties vibe. When that shit creeps up to my, my high school years, that's when I'm really going to feel old right then. I think that in this movie, uh, there's a turning point when he's just playing along and getting paid to when he actually has feelings for cat. And I don't care how much someone's paying you. You're not orchestrating the, the school band and rigging up the PA system yeah. just because of a prank. You got you got you got a little crush, bro. He got a crush. He got a crush. And oh, then I, he's in that, love. I feel like that moment was in the club uh when when uh Letters Cleo was playing, you know, in the background. At the bar, eighteen years old. <laughs> yep. Drinking whiskey and smoking cigarettes. Um but uh no, I agree. I agree. That that's uh I, I do think a lot of people try to recreate that, and I think that that's a cool gesture going that link to to orchestrate something that that uh, grandiose when you're in high school. Which, by the way, the high school couple of the lot. Like, let's shout that out. Like, that's a really? big a big thing for that movie. I can't stop thinking about the poem scene now. I'm gonna have to go rewatch it. It's so she crushes that scene. Dude, I I mean I will up like we I think any of the anybody who's ever listened to this show knows I'm like a crier. So like I definitely well up at that scene. Like it's completely touching. And like I I can't remember the exact words because if I could memorize them I would just cry again. So good excuse. Also, when Harry met Sally, they have a similar. I I hate you. I hate you. I hate you. I hate. I love you. A yeah, I mean, scene. well, yeah, that's that's kind of a thing. I mean, like, you know, a lot of times, absolutely, when love happens. It's like when you don't, you, I mean, maybe you don't want it to happen, and it happens, and you're mad because it happened when you didn't want it to happen, but it fucking happened. And and the good thing about that is that you know that it actually is real because you didn't want it to fucking happen, but it happened. And, you know, a lot of people are fortunate enough to have like a clear distinction like that. Speaking of clear distinctions and not clear distinctions, our last movie's iconic scene is the Ikea play date. Yeah. So... So uh, I think every couple goes through it. It's either a grocery store, a department store. I'm sure I've been on a, with a partner in Ikea. You go on a big shopping trip together. It happens. And this couple's instance, it's at Ikea where there's uh, makeshift rooms. Fully furnished, ready to live in, ready to escape into a reality furnished. Ready to play with, house. With projections. That's it. That's and it. it's in this scene where uh, Tom is led by the hand by Summer into a fake bed. And she tells him, you know, I'm not looking for anything serious. And he says, oh, yeah, totally. Yeah, me neither. That's why I'm not freaking out that I'm playing house with a girl in Ikea right now that I'm in love with and want to marry. And it's a pivotal scene in the movie. The most. It is. I mean, it, it's it's one of the defining moments in the film. And also um, to hearken to what you said, I mean, I really like, I mean, has there, 
has there been even one like alternative couple since 2009 uh, that lives in a major city that hasn't played house at Ikea? I mean, I mean, seriously, like it, it I think that that's a big like it, it just and it's a moment and I'm going to go a little bigger than than um, the romanticism of it all. Um, it speaks to our age. Um, in the society that we live in and in the way that young people have to explore their relationships, like a trip to Ikea, like a shopping trip in the society that we live in makes perfect sense. You're not going to really buy anything. You're going to daydream about buying these things. And, 100%. Then, and then you grow up in a world where you, you know, you get married, married and you register for those things on your wedding list. And then you get those things and then you don't get those things. And then, you save up money and get credit cards and you try to buy those things to make yourself happy. And I think that that's another theme of this movie as well because he gives his little quitting the greeting card industry thing. But I will say I have a critique. My critique is of this movie is he gives that beautiful speech about the culture industry creating this love environment. But he also doesn't want to quit that world. What he wants is to quit the work of that world. He wants to be the consumer of that world. He doesn't want to have to see mm, the sausage be made. He wants to fucking eat his hot dog on the 4th of July. And gotcha. that's how I feel. That that's my critique of this movie is it, it it takes love and it kind of puts it in this place that's um I don't know. That's a little a little cheesy, a little a little materialistic, a little yeah. unrealistic. And more more so unrealistic. I mean it, it there's some material things like like when he's like, do you really – okay, do you really love the Smiths? Do you really like the, their music or are you just trying to keep it playing at your desk so that the cute girl that you like walks by, hears the fact that you're listening to the Smiths, and then maybe she wants to go home with you and touch your dick? Like is that really what's going on in your head? Because you know what – when you find out someone likes the Smiths, simply someone – of the opposite sex like you that you're attracted to you know what you're playing the game that's what i'm saying like you're a it, cog in the machine man precisely and and I, I think that while he gives this elegant quit speech i think the ikea the whole in because ikea is almost a mecca of like hip capitalism at its finest right like this is this is the future and we're gonna do it and we're gonna make it things affordable and they're gonna be cute and like this is what you want and like, you know, hey, like you get a new apartment together and you go to Ikea and you buy a bunch of shit and you feel like this is ours together and da 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 and you do that with your next partner, your next partner and blah, 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 blah. And I think that's one thing I think about when I think about this. But I do want to hear your thoughts on the fact that this, the pivotal part of the movie is the fact that she kind of tells him hey, I'm not really looking for anything serious, but, like, let's proceed to fall in love. I think it, I couple it with runner-up of best or most important scene in this film. So we've kind of fleshed out how we feel about this scene. But what I can do is bridge together two scenes, and the other one is when they go to see The Graduate, and he thinks it's because it's this, like, high-romance film about love. And what does Summer do when they go see it? She cries. Cries. cries her eyes out and they have an awkward goodbye i mean we've all been there when you're on a roll with a new partner you're spending every waking moment with each other and the first time that one of you is like ah oh, no i think i'm gonna go it's like oh shit did i fuck up 
like the honeymoon, the first honeymoon cloud clearing thing happens. And I think that scene with this Ikea scene, it really paints a, it really paints a realistic picture of, of misunderstood intention of someone trying to be clear of trying to be true to themselves and give themselves self-respect and act impulsively if they need to. And I, wholly, I can just say, I don't think this, again, this movie is about a young woman being like a cruel, cold bitch or no, a, or a young man being a dope wimp, like with no spine. Sure. Even though both of those things might be true. I think it's just a story about young people figuring it out and falling flat on their fucking faces. That's and, right. You're right. Yeah. And that's all I want to say. And I, no, and I, and I do, I, I did, I did used to be in some camps that we've addressed and like this movie used to piss me off and this movie used to like make me feel like an idiot because I identified with it. But really now, like looking at it a little more uh, analytically, I understand, I, I think more so with the overall message of the film is, which is kind of a microcosm of what happens in the movie. So it really, again, it emphasizes and enforces the idea of these rom-coms as someone who is a millennial is a product of the decade that this film is describing. Uh, Boom. For, no, for sure. <laughs> well put. Well put. I got two things to say. I mean, I agree. Um, I think that... I mean, well, I mean, I don't know. Well put. Absolutely. I mean, I think you've brought me around to the fact that he's not as dopey and wimpy as he's just figuring himself out. Um, I think my... My holdup with that was his age, maybe, you know, but I think you're right. I mean, this, this, that, that movie is about figuring oneself out. And I think that that scene really is a beautiful representation of that moment in a relationship when you're figuring out what is this, this feeling that, that we have, like we're in this bed together, although it, be a stage-esque bed if you will like we're playing this role is this role something that we feel for one another like it's a beautiful representation of that moment in a relationship yeah and which one speaks up and cuts through the circumstances to speak their mind and which one despite that from the other person continues to live in some fantasy world and Summer says how she feels and, she you know, makes the clouds disappear and, a wah, wah, and says, listen, I'm having a great time with you, but this, I'm just want to be clear, but Tom keeps on drinking the Kool-Aid. He, he does. And that's what I mean. And like, that's when I even get to his monologue when he quits about, you know, blah, 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 love and you're trying to create this fake shit, blah, 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 blah. It's like. I get it, but like you also, you don't want to, you you don't want to leave that world. You just want to be, you want to consume it. Like you don't want to see how it's made. You just want to eat it. And it's like, it, no, it, I love that analogy. Thank I you get that. it. I do get it. Um, I just think that summer is the more personally. When I come away from this movie, and okay, first let's just say. You have to give kudos to this film simply for the fact that how many movies create like camps because you're absolutely right. Like whether you got to go back to Tumblr or circa 20 fucking 11 to find them. This I movie know your girlfriend would. Camps. You know, th this movie created camps. It created absolutely. like whole places that people disagreed. 
and it also created conversations. You know, it it did, and 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 all I'll say is that after watching it again and again and again for this and looking at it more critically, I think. I believe that Summer is the more the character that comes out of this a little bit more on the enlightened side for myself. From from my understanding, I think that I hope things work out well for Tom and Autumn, uh, but I also ho- hope that uh, Autumn knows what she's getting herself into. <laughs> that was cold. Was it though? I think it was just realistic. I, I there you I, go. I err on that side now, but I want to be open about my journey with this movie. Yes, and I do. I sincerely err on that side now, but not everybody is right all the time, and not everybody's perfect, and it's difficult. It is. It is. And look, and that's the that's a good way to kind of like to even just summarize like the whole thing. I mean, rom-coms, they're so good. The reason I think both of us love them, and that's something that we knew about each other from the beginning of our friendship was the fact that we both really loved rom-coms. I mean, I think Sandra Bullock is probably one of our favorites. Like we've seen. Oh, Sandy. Thank you. Come on. Right. Like we can get down on like, all. come on, just get there. Like we love it. Okay. Uh, but we picked these movies to go through the decades, and these movies were picked because of trends that they set, and they all do that thing. But, but what's so good about rom coms is they they make you they get you in your feels because we've one thing that's universal is it doesn't matter whether you're falling in love with a man or you're falling in love with a woman or you're falling in love with whomever. Uh, we've all fallen in love, and that feeling is the same whether it's whomever it's with. It's the same. It's the same feeling, and we've all felt that, and that's why these movies are so fun. They bring out the awkward moments, the pure moments, the joyous moments, the moments of agony, and all that good stuff, and I just think that that's why I'm drawn to them. You know what I mean? Love, in a phrase, is both romantic and comedic. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I think one of my favorite lines from these four movies is from when Harry met Sally and it's uh, you'd be surprised what falling madly in love can do for you and not only does that mean finding someone maybe that means it doesn't work out maybe you fall madly in love and you get your heart broken maybe it's unrequited maybe there's infidelity but it could be good for you and it could do something for you and it's universal, and I think that's why, why these movies are feel-good movies, and they're also cultural commentaries and important in the greater scheme of things. Agreed. And I'll add one little thing. My favorite quote from all of these movies is from Annie Hall when Alvy Singer says, I've been killing spiders since I was 30. That's a brave man right there. I took a puff off a joint at a party one time and tried to take my pants off over my head. Oh, God. This was a, this was a rich, rich episode. I'm so happy we did this. Thanks for sticking with us, y'all. We had so much fun with this one. And Joshua, thanks for joining me again, brother. Cheers to the birds. Hallelujah.